the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Beth Bacall. I am so honored. I'm so excited. We are about to spend time with Pastor Louis Giglio from Passion City Church. He's here to share his new book, Not Forsaken. So just to warm things up a little, is it okay if we start with some word association? Absolutely. Don't make it too hard, though. Five words. I'll say a word, and you tell me the first word that comes to your mind and just expand on it. Okay. Word one, space. Oh, glory of God. Mm. The heavens are telling the glory of God. Their expanse declares the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech, and there's no place on earth where their voices are not heard. Uh, At a word, uh, the James Webb Telescope. Watch for it. Get ready. Our minds are about to be blown. Hmm. Yeah, you love science. I love science because God created it all, and science helps us see it and appreciate it all. Mm -hmm. Pet. Word number two, pet. Oh, my goodness. That one's so easy. I have never had a pet, a a dog, or a cat because my sister was allergic. Five years ago, Shelly got London the Golden Doodle, and she has totally revolutionized my life. I am done. She's so incredible. I got to drive her to the Grove last night, and um, it's the best photo, I think, of the year that I've taken of her in the backseat of the car, just doing her thing, looking totally like, yes, she should be driving me to the Grove. But she's amazing, and so for pets, it definitely would be um, London. Did you specifically get a doodle because it was a hypoallergenic dog? Well, my sister was the allergic one, but yes, we got her because she doesn't shed. So if you're looking for a non-shedding, awesome, amazing, smart but loyal dog, a golden doodle is what you want. And there's a certain kind, Shelly could tell you, it's a something, something, something kind that makes them not shed and hypoallergenic. So you have to look into that part. Okay. Word number three, tennis. Tennis. First word that comes to my mind is Stan Smith. Uh, tennis legend. A lot of people don't know Stan. They know his shoes. The Stan Smith iconic classic tennis shoe. His face is on the tongue. His name is on the back, but he's a real guy. And he's an awesome guy. He loves the Lord. And he won major tennis tournaments. And he's a friend of a friend and actually a friend of mine. And I love the Stan Smith shoe. It is the classic tennis shoe. In fact, kids all over Italy last week wearing mm-hmm. the Stan Smith. I mean, rocking it even more than America. It was pretty awesome. And I also think about uh, fantasy because I thought I was going to be a professional tennis player in my life. So it wasn't good enough and it wasn't God's plan. But other than that, it was a good dream. And that's what you originally registered for when you went to Georgia State? Went to Georgia State, was going to play on the tennis team, me and my buddy together. He ended up playing on the tennis team at Georgia State because he was good. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, Word number four. It's two words. Hawaiian punch. Wow. Tell a story, actually, and not forsaken, about um, when Shelly was a student at Baylor, and I was a grad student in Fort Worth, 63 miles up the road. And this was before uh, mobile phones and texting and FaceTime and all that. If you wanted to see somebody, you had to show up. I was studying in the library, thinking about how fast I could be at her dorm, drove down. Uh, Our thing was Hawaiian punches. I don't know where that started, but I stopped at the convenience store, got two Hawaiian punches, walked in her dorm, set them on the counter, and asked the lady who was sort of like the dorm resident 
leader. Could you call up to Shelly Graves' room and tell her someone's here, but don't say who? And she came down, and there sat the two cans of Hawaiian Punch. And so she was like, ah, I know you're around here somewhere. And we had our moment. Uh, we may have kissed. Uh, probably not. But uh, we may have kissed and talked for 15 minutes. And then I had to go back to Fort Worth to school. So that was our little mini date for the night. But uh, there's a lot of cute college boys at Baylor, and I needed to stay in the game. How romantic. <laughs> And the book says you kissed. Well, okay, so it's in the book, then we definitely kissed. We probably prayed and did a small Bible mm-hmm. study together. We might have held hands. Word five, injuries. Injuries. You, you <laughs> as a young man growing up, you've had quite a few. Yeah, I have had a few. I mean, I think every boy has injuries, and if you don't uh, break a leg and have stitches a few times in life, you're probably not, not doing the right thing. But I tell a couple of stories. I mean, one of them I shared at church Sunday about my dad bringing me home a Swiss army knife from his six month work project in Europe. And I was 10 years old, never seen a Swiss army knife. My dad opens it up. It has a corkscrew and a pair of tweezers and a toothpick and a bottle opener and some scissors and two different knife blades. And my mom is like, oh my goodness, why did you bring him a knife? And so my dad gives me the impromptu lesson, always cut away from your body. And I say, I'll always do that. Till a few weeks later, I was learning to carve by myself while my parents had guests at the house. And I wasn't getting as far as I wanted carving this big block of wood. So I turned the knife the wrong way, used all my little 10-year-old might on it. And the knife slipped and it sliced that piece of skin all the way through where your thumb and your index finger um, are connected. And it was quite the endeavor. I'll let you read the rest of the story in the book. But man, my mom's reaction, I went in and interrupted the, the card game that she and my parents were having with their friends. I said, Mom, Mom. And I pulled the little the tissue paper back and I said, I, I cut my hand. And she says, why did you do that? And I was like, oh my gosh. My mom wasn't the best first responder. She's a saint. She's in heaven now, and she's responsible for me being here. Prayed me to right here. But, uh, boy, if you, you know, gashed your head or broke a leg, you wanted my dad. <laughs> do you have a scar still? I do. Yeah, it's right there. I don't know if you can see it or not. It's moved huh. around in okay. time. So it's right here, across there. Yeah. used to go right there, but huh. when you get old, your skin moves around, apparently. so. And, and your mom didn't respond that well either when you broke your leg. No, I had I sent a friend home. I knew I broke my leg, snapped it right in two. This was when I was 11, the next year. And I said, go get my mom. My leg is broken. And the guy comes back, my friend in the box, he says, your mom said, if you don't get home right now, you're going to be grounded. And I was like, oh, man, I should have thought through this. Go get my dad. You know, and not too long, my dad's carrying me to the house with my broken leg. And lo and behold, I had to get a cast on from my toes all the way to my hip right down the street here at Piedmont Hospital. But mom, uh, she was great for a lot of things, but she told me more than once in my life, don't come in the house. You're bleeding. (laughs) Stay on the porch. It's like, mom, I need help. Stay outside. You've included a lot of family stories in your book, Not Forsaken, especially stories about your father. And you make a point to say that we are all hardwired to receive our father's approval. Yeah, it's the thing that is common for everyone listening right now. We all are different in so many ways, but every one of us right now in this moment has one thing in common, and that is that we long for our Father's blessing. And I think that's described as our Father's approval, our Father's affection, our Father's participation and investment in our lives. And when you have it, like my wife has the greatest dad still alive, when you have that blessing, it's a foundation stone. But when you don't have it, there's a gap. 
And that's why this book, uh, this book is written because our earthly father relationships are cracked and God is a perfect heavenly father. So we've got to let God repair and restore what has been so that we can step into what God has for each one of us. And we all want it. We all long for it. There's an interesting fact, uh, Beth, in the book. This uh, psychologist studied 75 high achieving women. So these women are killing it in life. Amazing families, amazing careers, amazing jobs, succeeding in every way. And the psychologist said she was surprised, twice she says surprised, to discover that every one of them still viewed their success through the filter of their father's approval. And she said a lot of the women had terrible relationships with their dad, had been hurt by their fathers, didn't, didn't even need to give their fathers the right to have a viewpoint in their lives. Yet even those women had a strong connection to their dads, wanting to know how does my dad view what I'm doing. And so it stays with us our whole life. We can stuff it and try to ignore it, but you can't do that. It's like that cut between my thumb and my index finger. We wrapped it in gauze because uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't be bothered to go to the emergency room and get stitches. So we just kept wrapping it in gauze for two weeks and it never healed. It just got worse and worse. And I think in our lives, we've got to let God unwrap and let God come into these places of pain and disappointment, brokenness and hurt and let him bring his power and his healing into our lives. You've been invited into a lot of other people's pain, and that could be one of the reasons you wrote this book. And and it parallels with the specific upbringing you had as well from what you saw. And you've also made a point to state that we're living in a fatherless generation. You know, and it's interesting, Beth, that I that's not a pastoral point of view. Uh, some of the best-selling voices in America right now are writing books about the fatherless generation. Uh, boy, The Boy Crisis is one of the biggest books out there right now in the world of sociology and psychology. And these are not Christian books. They're just human books of people realizing that we are reaping the harvest of no-fault divorce of all 50 states. We're reaping the harvest of a generation where fathers are not present in the home. One in four kids in America lives in a home where a father is not present. That means that blessing isn't present in the home day by day by day. And so this is the world we live in. And, you know, God is, uh, if God is a father, then the enemy has done a great job of destroying what fatherhood really is all about. So that if fatherhood on an earthly level can be cracked and broken, then that's going to give us a hurdle to come to know our heavenly father in the way that he wants us to know him. So it's not coincidental that families are cracking up. It's a plan of the enemy, but God is greater and God restores and repairs and he gives back what the enemy steals from us. And I've seen him do it time and time again. And I believe through the message of this book, he's going to do it for this whole generation. One of your biggest messages in this book is the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. A.W. Tozer is a legendary voice in my life, a theologian. And he, this is what he said. He said, whatever comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So for some people, maybe it's this divine being or energy or light. For somebody, it's like this scorekeeper in heaven or this angry man or this gentle grandfather, the Siri or Alexa in the sky. I mean, there's so many different concepts people have, but we've got to get it right. Because Tozer goes on to say, we move by secret law of the soul towards our mental image of God. We're created by God and we're looking for him. Whether we know it or not, we are looking for the God who made us. And if we think that God is an angry scorekeeper, then we're going to be dodging him and looking over our shoulder all of our lives. But if we see that he is a father who loves us, gave himself for us, was committed to us before we were committed to him, then we're going to approach him 
and say, thank you, and I need you in my life. And so everybody's got a viewpoint of God. It's important, essential that we get that viewpoint right. And I try to do that. It's kind of a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but we talk about a lot of the different viewpoints of God, and then we let God weigh in. Because at the end of the day, this is the beautiful thing, Beth. It's not left up to me and to you to figure out who God is. God steps into the story and says, I want you to know who I am. So I'm going to reveal through creation. I'm going to reveal through my word. And I'm going to reveal through my son, Jesus. And what Jesus taught us more than anything else about God is that he is a father. Mm -hmm. It's that one word, forgiveness. It really enters into that place where we have a different viewpoint on what a good father should be like. And we have a different viewpoint on what forgiveness is all about. You know, people think I'm not going to forgive because I don't want to let someone off the hook or they don't deserve to be forgiven or they didn't even ask to be forgiven. But none of us deserve to be forgiven. No one deserved to be forgiven, and none of us asked to be forgiven. God chose to forgive. That's the power of the gospel. I didn't knock on his door one day and say, would you send your son into the world so that I could be forgiven? He sent his son into the world before there was a world. And so I'm the product today of the lavish forgiveness of God. And I love it. I I say sometimes I I want it like dump truck. I, I back the truck up. I need all the forgiveness I can get. And I want to receive all the forgiveness I can from God. But now if you wrong me, hmm, let me think about it. Do you really deserve it? Are you really sorry? Are you really going to change? Have you really proved to me that I should forgive you? And what I've learned in my life is that I like to receive it with a shovel, and I I normally dispense it with a teaspoon. (laughs) And I'm trying to move in this place in my life where I dispense forgiveness Mm. the same way I've received it. And I think that when we are dispensing forgiveness with a teaspoon, that may show that we actually haven't received it as much as we think we have. And Mm. in this book, Beth, we're talking about big stuff. Um, We're talking about maybe fathers who hurt their kids, abandoned them, walked out on them, broke promises, uh, left scars and pain. So we're not just saying, hey, let's just sweep all that under the rug, act like it never happened and move on. God doesn't do that with us. He didn't. It's not what he did with our sin. He didn't sweep anything under the rug. And I'm not suggesting that any of us do that. I am suggesting, though, that we come to the cross and we find the power there to extend forgiveness, even if it's not asked for or never received. And it may not repair the relationship, but it will free us. And that's what God intends. And forgiveness is powerful like that. It doesn't free me when you receive it. It frees me the moment I extend it to you. Reverse the curse. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. That's just so much easier said than done. And you make it very clear in this book that you had a great father. He wasn't a perfect father, but you do have a perfect father. You know, none of us have a perfect father. And uh, my dad was a great dad. And I have a sister and both of us, we, we just were so blessed to have him. But later in life, my dad got sick and he became disabled mentally and physically because of a brain virus, a resulting stroke and a resulting brain surgery where they Mm -hmm. took a lot of my dad's brain out. And my dad started talking in his early 60s like a lot of people talk in their 80s. You know how you lose the filter about 80 and you just say what you think and you're not worried about what people think about it. And my dad's in the hospital. He's been through a second brain surgery. My dad doesn't have a relationship with Jesus that I can see and observe in life. And I'm just trying to bless him and tell him how much I love him and Mm -hmm. how much God loves him. And my dad looked at me down the hospital bed, just a mile from where we're having this conversation right now. And he said, no one ever loved me and no one ever wanted me. And I don't believe God loves me or God wants me either. 
when I was about 35 years old, 34, sitting there looking at my dad and I was, I, I mean, just tears welled up in my eyes and I couldn't even, I couldn't breathe hardly, much less respond to that. And I thought, you've been, there's some thinking in my heart, you've been carrying that all my life. My dad's parents split up. He lived with his grandmother. He lived with other relatives and aunt. His dad died when I was born and he never felt the blessing. He never felt the affection, the approval, the involvement. And I just would step back after that and say, wow, you have been a great dad given the way that you've been managing your life. No wonder he was depressed. No wonder he drank. No wonder he lived the the way that he lived. I mean, this guy was carrying a heavy, heavy weight. And I just want to encourage everyone listening to us right now, you know, parents are people. And it's hard sometimes when you're young to see that. You're like, oh, you're my dad. It's like, no, you're a son of a father. You're my mom. No, you're the daughter of a father. And maybe you didn't get the blessing. Maybe you don't have what we all need. And that moment on, I just thought to myself, I said, you know what? My dad never got the blessing. I have the benefit of having a heavenly father and a new family tree and a, and a love for Jesus. So I'm committed to as long as my dad is alive. And there were about maybe three more years my dad lived after that. I'm going to bless him. I'm going to speak love over him. I'm going to speak blessing back up the family tree. Um, not that none came down the family tree, but I've got a better blessing over here out of this tree. And I'm going to send that blessing up into the day my dad died. I just blessed him and blessed him and blessed him and blessed him. And I don't know how that all worked out. He died of a heart attack in the middle of an afternoon while I was in Boston speaking at a conference one day. And I never got to say goodbye to my dad and we never got to close that conversation. But I know that he knew he was loved and I know that he knew that he had a blessing over his life. Mm, You are such a good son, such a good son. And the fish photo in the book, Not Forsaken, (laughs) it's such a good example. It shows how we are all so much like our parents. You look just, well, you looked almost like your dad (laughs) holding up that little fish. Your dad was a a very athletic man. He had 0% body fat in that photo. (laughs) And he had this little bathing suit that he wore. This was about 1968, we figured out. And we'd been deep sea fishing on our family vacation to Fort Walton Beach, Florida, that we went to every year, our one-week vacation to the motel. And we went out on a friend's fishing boat, caught these king mackerel, and we have them back at the motel, and my dad and I are holding them up. And when you look at the picture, you know, no one said, hey, stand like your dad, hold the fish like your dad, look like your dad. But now it looks like they did because it's these two little skinny guys um, standing next to each other. And whether we like it or not, we are the product of our mom's and our dad's Mm -hmm. DNA and a lot of their characteristics and personality. But thank God we have the opportunity to be born again. Mm sons and daughters of God, and we get his DNA, and we get his characteristics uh, woven into our spirit, and we have the possibility to grow up and be like our Heavenly Father. Amen. And thankfully, no matter what we have or haven't been through, we have a chance to heal. And to heal, you need to deal. (laughs) It doesn't doesn't work to deny. A guy was telling me recently, he said, I don't care what my dad thinks. I don't need my dad's approval. He was like, this guy's late 40s, made a lot of money. He said, I don't need my dad's approval. I don't even know where my dad is. I don't care if I ever talk to my dad again. And he went on and on for a little bit, making his case. He got done. I said, why did you tell me all that? And, uh, you know, he knew. I told you that because I've been telling myself that every day since my dad walked out on me. I've been telling myself I don't need my dad. 
But I said, you know, every day you've told yourself that and every day you've told somebody else that all you're doing is reinforcing the fact that there's a wound there. There's a gash somewhere in your heart and you have to deal with that. You know, you just can't walk away. You can't numb it. You can't succeed over it. You can't get enough accomplishment to diminish it. You have to let God open that place and you've got to let God bring the power of the cross of Jesus. Mm -hmm. He has wounds. Jesus has wounds and now scars. Think about that, Beth. In heaven, Jesus still has the scars. Mm. The scars are proof that he made it, that he finished the work, he paid the price, and he made it. He's healed. Jesus is resurrected and healed. And we have, we're going to have scars too. Uh, and, and sometimes we try to hide them. Like, I don't want you to see that I had a wound, but the scar is proof that we made it. And it's proof that God is big enough to put us back on a pathway towards his purpose and his future for our lives. Well, I'm excited for my daughters to read this book and for myself. I go to the place in your book where you talk about your decision to become a pastor. You were at youth group. Everyone had left the room, but you stayed there in your chair reflecting on Christ broken on the cross. Yeah. I'm inspired to really get with that and to understand what the healing and the dealing still needs to be about. I think for a lot of us that grew up in church, the cross is sort of like a midpoint in our life. At some point we come to the cross, we're forgiven, we're saved, and then we move on in life. But this is not the way of the gospel. The cross is a daily Mm. rhythm. That's why Jesus said, take up your cross every day. And that wasn't a negative thing like, hey, die to yourself and suffer and go through hell and back every single day. There's a good thing about taking up the cross every day, Mm. because every day we take up this mediation, this repair, this restoration, this power. And I find in my own life that meditating on the cross of Christ is so transformational for me because it gets me out of human thinking, which is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it gets me into grace, transformational, supernatural thinking, which is God didn't give me what I deserved. And therefore, I want to live a life of not needing to give everybody what I think they deserve. And we have to have that supernatural air going into our lungs if we're going to move forward in life. And the enemy, he's fine if we love the cross. Just stay in the past with all your guilt and all your wounds and all your shame and all your anger and bitterness. Just stay imprisoned by that. And the cross is for today, and it shows me today that I am forgiven, and that I am loved, and that I am prized, and that my God understands pain, and that his son went through abandon, that Jesus was forsaken. And so God relates to where I am today, but Jesus didn't stay on the cross. So I don't want to stay in this place. I want to move on to the resurrection and move on in the hope of the Holy Spirit taking me to a different place in Mm. my life. Louis, this is not the first book you've written. You've built Passion City Church in Atlanta, Georgia. You know the ins and the outs of the White House. What do you want to be asked? What do you want to be asked? Wow, that's a great question. I, I want to be asked, what do I want to be asked? That's what I want to be asked. But I need to think about it for a okay. minute. I mean, I, I think, you know, I want people to ask, um, is it real and does it work? Um, so that we don't just stay on the surface mm. and just talk about, oh, you wrote a book. and know oh, it has some great thoughts in it. But I think that for me, the thing that's powerful is that God is moving towards me and you. 
And I know this because of this book. We, I wasn't even going to write this book. I was writing another book. Our whole team was committed to writing another book. My next book was going to be a different book. And I woke up um, a year ago, and as clear as a bell, God stirred my heart and said, no, it's this message. And I've been carrying this message for 30 years mm-hmm. under the title, Seeing God as a Perfect Father. I've been sharing these sermons for a long time, 722 back in the day, uh, Passion City Church, early days. And I woke up and God said, it's seeing God as a perfect father. This is the time. This is the moment. This is the book. And and Beth, from that morning until the last week I finished the manuscript and discovered by the most random circumstances that my great-grandfather, Vito Giglio, who I never heard my dad talk about, not one time. I never met his dad because I was one year old when he died. I never even heard of anyone talk about my great-grandfather. The last week of the book. It started with God saying, the time is now, and we changed all of our plans. It ended with me getting a letter from a relative who I don't even know that well, letting me know about my great-grandfather, and I discovered, this is crazy. I'm sitting at my desk, and I live very close to where we are right now, so I'm sitting right down the street at my desk, and I'm reading this letter, and I realize my great-grandfather is buried 30 minutes from where I'm sitting, and I just, I'm like, mind blown. And I find out that he he died at Grady Hospital on mm-hmm. Valentine's Day, that he lived in Atlanta for 21 years, down by old Turner Field, that he worked for the Atlanta city uh, government. And God was just saying, hey, I've been with you the whole process. This book has dug up a lot in your heart. It's made you want to know more about your family and where you came from. So at the finish here, I'm going to let you know Vito has been under your plane almost every time you've landed and taken off from the Atlanta airport all of your life. And I just was like, you know what? God is closer than we think he is. And he's waiting right now to meet us right here in this present moment and lead us into his future for our Mm. lives. How cool. How good is God that you received your own confirmation after writing the book? So good. Thank you for writing Not Forsaken. Thank you for reading the book, actually, and knowing what it's about. Man, that makes a like game-changing difference. Yes, that's like a radio name. Vito Giglio. I heard that. Vito. Yo, Vito. (laughs) I just came from Sicily, and I loved it because, you know, we Americanized our name to Giglio somewhere back in the line, but my name is pronounced Giglio. And man, when you're in Sicily, they have nothing to do with Giglio. It is Giglio all the way. And uh, there are a lot of Giglios around. And so it's like Luigi Giglio. I was like, man, I wish I could do that in America. It just wouldn't work here. <laughs> but it's so good. <laughs> Especially in Atlanta. Yeah. <laughs> that would be hard. What's the best thing you ate in Sicily? Ooh, man, we had some, uh, the cannoli. Uh, Sicily is the home of cannoli. And there's a little Albanian village right up in the hills from Palermo, Palermo, where I was. And uh, from eight centuries back or more, they've been making cannoli there. Mm. And I don't know what the secret is, but wow, the little crust that it's in, a little crispy wraparound thing, I think is the secret for them. And um, I'm not even a big cannoli eater. But man, the cannoli in Sicily is lights out. The olive oil in Sicily is lights out. So I think I try to eat olive oil every meal in Sicily, <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then save room for the cannoli. Uh, but man, everything they eat there is fresh. It's just an incredible culture and a beautiful place. Amazing yeah. people. Awesome. My people. 
Your people. <laughs> your people. Let's tell your people the social media for Not Forsaken. The hashtag for the book's Not Forsaken. Um, but if they follow uh, Louis Giglio or go to notforsakenbook.com, um, that's where they can see some cool videos. There's actually a video there about me being at Vito's grave. And um, and that's at notforsakenbook.com. And uh, you can find out how to get the book at any of our retail partners there also. Thank you for all the messages you share, especially this Not Forsaken. Thanks, Beth. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.